Hi everyone, it's Britt, the Petite Polymath, and today we're going to be talking about Sue Monk Kids, The Book of Longings. Get excited! Okay, so uh, my friend Vicki, she and I usually try to meet up for dinner, uh, maybe about once a month if we're lucky. Usually it ends up being more like once every few months. And she had recommended a book to me that was pretty timely because it actually was a book that was recommended by an author I respect greatly. Anuma Okoro, who had actually um, written an Advent devotional that I really love. And so I decided, well then, between these two women whose opinions I respect, I should definitely check this out. I had a little trepidation because anyone who knows me knows I'm a devout Christian. And the subject matter, I, when I heard the initial synopsis, gave me a bit of pause. And then I had to kind of unpack my own, like, knee-jerk reactions to it, um, and decided that it was something worth uh, investigating. So Sue Monk Kidd, who I think professed Christianity for some period of time, although now maybe has moved into this idea of the divine feminine, which I I'd venture to say isn't really Christian, um, which was one of the reasons why I was a little bit hesitant to read the book. Um, wrote The Secret Life of Bees, for those of you who read lots of kind of uh, contemporary fiction. So she decided to write this book, The Book of Longings, and it actually is kind of a, a book of, of creative license of the idea that we don't actually know Jesus's life from the age of 12 to 30, because his ministry was from the age of 30 to 33. Uh, and everything before that is very much kind of shrouded in mystery and the Bible doesn't give us any, any kind of information of what he was up to. And so she says, well, what if during that time he was married? And what if that marriage um, ended because of his death, um, or better yet, ended because of the beginning of his ministry? And that's an interesting what if, because, I mean, if you want to be completely honest, it doesn't actually change anything. <laughs> Whether I believe that or not, it, it's, it's an interesting um, supposition. Because I figure if anyone would be an excellent husband, it would definitely be Jesus, right? And so the book is actually from the perspective of his, you know, fictitious wife, um, a woman named Anna, who doesn't really fit in her time. She is willful, she is curious, she is intellectual, and she is um, the protagonist of the story. This is a young woman, and you know, she's young, as in on the on the cusp of womanhood when we meet her, and actually like, starts to go through puberty um, throughout the book, and then is getting you know set up for marriage afterwards. And and it's interesting, of course, because you know if you look at the historically women are um, often betrothed as, you know, there were no adolescents, no teens, um, probably until the last, like, I don't know, 70 years or something like that. Before that, you went from child to adult. And so when a woman or when a, or when a young girl went from being a young girl to being able to be a mother, that's when she'd be usually arranged to be married to a man who could be close to her age, potentially, or could be significantly older than her. 
And so, um, so Anna is, is, is a, you know, a pawn of her time, for lack of a better term, um, very much at the mercy of the men that she is with, whether it's her father and brother um, or people that hold sway and authority over the men in her life, um, because you can't really be on your own during this time. And we know this, if, we look, if you know anything about um, the first century, and if you read a Bible, the Hebrew Bible, or, you know, or even the New Testament, um, there's this idea that women don't have very much agency at all. They're at the mercy of the men that they're with. And so Anna is one of these people. Um, some interesting characters is that you have Anna, the protagonist. You have her aunt, Yaltha, who is a widow. Um, you have her parents, her brother, Judas, who is really kind of like a, a cousin adopted um, into the family. And then you have the servants in the house. And so Anna is someone who is sharp and intellectual. Her father had a soft spot for her, and so he taught her how to read and how to write and would give her um, paper and pen so that she could write her stories. Her parents were often at odds at each other because was this something that was appropriate for a young, a young girl, soon-to-be woman? That was debatable. Um, but her dad often would kind of just put up with her hopes and dreams. The thing about her father was that he also had political um, aspirations, and he worked for Herod, the Herod who is accused by John the Baptist of adultery with his brother's wife, the Herod who uh, is seduced by his stepdaughter, pervert that he is, and then um, has to behead John the Baptist because that's what she asked for, because she doesn't know what to ask for, and her mother wants this because they're upset that John is, is talking about their dysfunctional, um, repulsive <laughs> uh, relations, you know, relations that are going on in the family. So Herod, real person who exists. Um, the Herod, who is, if I remember correctly, is like the equivalent of like the governor of Judea, um, Jewish, but grew up very much influenced by Greek and Roman culture, and really is like more interested in being considered, you know, cool and Gentile than being Jewish, but also, of course, wanting the approval and respect of the Jewish people that he governs. Um, so Anna is, is in the midst of, 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 of this whole you know, milieu of, of people. She is the daughter of a wealthy, well-positioned man. Her adoptive brother Judas is uh, the equivalent of a zealot, which for people who know about you know, Jesus' disciples, one of the disciples had the nickname the zealot. We don't really know if that's because he was politically a zealot who was someone who was for the overthrowing of Rome by violence versus like, you know, just a nickname that he had. We really aren't so sure. But in this book, Judas is a zealot and is looking to help with, in any way, the violent overthrow of Rome 
because Rome is oppressive in Judea. And so Anna, through, you know, a series of, of interactions outside of the home, ends up meeting Jesus. And in ways that I won't ruin for you, he ends up being her husband for a period of time. Um, and he's the kindest, which is shocking to no one. And what I loved about Sue Monk Kid is that you are seeing Jesus through the eyes of someone who observes him. And she says that she's very interested in focusing on the humanity of Jesus, not in his divinity, which I can respect. Um, for people who don't know, you know, Christians believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man. So neither one of those things is less. They are both equally important. So, you know, for someone who focuses a lot on the divinity of Christ, because that's, you know, what you often do in your faith, it's really interesting to see this fictional account of the fully human Jesus, you know, seeking to figure out what God's plan for him is, coming into the realization that he is indeed um, the Son of God, um, you know, coming into contact with John the Baptist and being baptized, and then also the balance of his responsibilities as the oldest son. His father has died, Joseph's dead, Mary is a widow now, and so Jesus is helping support his mother. He has siblings who are getting married, but he hasn't gotten married yet. And Why hasn't he gotten married yet? Because that's the appropriate thing to do when you're a young man, um, is that you start your family. And so it's a very, it's just an interesting way of unfolding the story. And in fact, I, I would say that for me, it made me even more, what's the word, endeared to a description of, of Jesus than I already am. And I already, I already feel lots of feelings about, about Jesus, of course, because of what I believe. Um, but I think the ability to imagine just opens a whole new world there. And what I love about this book, there is such poetry in the language. And I actually went for a walk because I was reading this book and I also had started reading um, Colson Whitehead's The Underground Railroad, which, uh, stay tuned, I, I don't know if I'm going to ever get around to finishing it, to be honest. Um, but they both just kind of hit you like a ton of bricks in the gut if you're a woman um, because you just can't help but think of how much women have endured um, at the hands of men throughout history and, you know, how, how um, timely given the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, over the weekend and just this, this sense of women have, have been um, marginalized. You know, still today, the largest percentage of poor humans are women and children. The most vulnerable at every time are women without the protection of men, particularly in the developing world. I think from a, at least from a, a financial um, and physical standpoint, you know, we've come a long way, of course, you know. As a single childless woman in her mid-30s, um, to be able to stand on your own two feet 
is incredibly telling, but still, uh, the idea that your voice is not respected or amplified and that you have to fight so hard for what is your due, um, for the respect that you're due just as a human being, for safety of your body, um, for your ideas to be considered valid and important, um, to have the choice of how you want your life to look, to be in real partnership with the person that you decide to build a life with, which was something that was so beautiful to me is, is Anna's relationship with Jesus is such a equitable marriage. There is mutua- mutuality of seeing each other, mutual respect and affection and vulnerability and tenderness um, and love. And, you know, she doesn't, so not to spoil it because we know what happens to Jesus. Um, she doesn't have, she, she doesn't have like a, a part to play in his ministry at all. Because of situation, she has to leave and can't go with him when he begins his ministry. But she does come back when he's crucified. And she's there to help with the preparing of his body for burial. But she's not there for the resurrection. And so she doesn't know what happened. And all she knows is that moving forward, when she hears tell of his disciples preaching the gospel of him, they tell people that he's single. And the servant that she works with says, well, maybe it's because you were never there, you know. And I love the fact that you only get, you know, you only get one side of the story. So it's not that it's being omitted. It's just that this is something she's not privy to. And she wasn't friends with Peter or John or Thomas or any of these men um, or any of the women to be able to find out what happened to him. Uh, So I just, I like devoured this in maybe two or three days. And then just kind of sat with it. And I think I read it maybe a week or two ago. It's taken me a while to do a recording. But I just wanted to kind of think of how I wanted to even broach it. Um, I think the takeaway to me is that if you are a woman, just kind of thinking about your place in the world, in in a very metaphysical way, I think to know, I don't think that Sue Monk Kidd even planned this perspective, but it's mine. Your womanhood is not by coincidence, and it was ordained and designed, and it is valuable and powerful and beautiful and good, and it doesn't need to be apologized for or explained away. Um, You have nothing to prove, and all you need to be is who you were created to be and to be fully that. Um, And I just thought that that was what I saw Jesus convey to Anna in their relationship, is that she was more than okay. She was good. Um, And so I thought that was done very well. I think it also kind of points to this idea of how many women's voices have been silenced throughout history. I'd gone to D.C. um, a couple of years ago to the Museum of Women in the Arts, and there's just all of this art done by women that you would never know the names of because they're not 
at least largely in these museums, and they're not touted as the masters. But who decides who the masters are? Who decides what's a classic? You know, whether it's film or novels or paintings or sculpture. And for all we know, there's, there's so many women who've contributed to these things and, you know, to scientific discovery. I think that Marie Curie, there's a, a movie coming out soon about her and her husband and, and, the, and the experiences that she had and the experiments that she developed and the ideas that she had and how many women have had ideas and musings and, and creations that have either been stolen by men or have been disregarded. And just the need to realize that if there's a, a vacuum, it's not because those things weren't done. It's just that they've been selectively hidden or destroyed. It kind of reminds me of the power that I talked about maybe a, a year or two ago. Um, a more brutal <laughs> uh, perspective about femininity and womanhood. But at any rate, uh, I highly recommend this book and I loved it. And I don't know if my washer is making a loud noise behind me. Hopefully it's not. I'm going to go listen to this again and see if it's being annoying. And if it is, you won't be hearing this anyway. If it isn't, then it's of no consequence. So we'll see. So um, unrelated, something I'm enjoying right now. So I'm super excited because Sylvan Esso, the North Carolina um, kind of electronic music duo, has a new album coming out, I think this Friday. So I've been listening to their old stuff in preparation and their new song, like Ferris Wheel, which is super dancey and delightful. I also um, have been watching um, the Tracy Ellis Ross uh, comedy Girlfriends because it, it came out on Netflix. I think it was in 2000 and I think it had eight episodes. I was probably, wait, what, 2000? I was a, in the fall of that, a rising senior in high school. Um, but I think I probably missed it, and I'm pretty sure my mother wouldn't have been too keen on it anyway back then. Um, so I've been watching it now, and it's been very amusing. Like, they have an episode about online dating, and it's, it could, I mean, clearly it was 20-something years ago because that's completely normal now, and it was very much an outlier back then. So if you need something on TV that's kind of light, it's very funny. The Petite Polymath is a podcast from the mind of Brit Stone. I don't know what I'm reading next, but stay tuned. Have a good week, y'all.